A Piper Malibu is flying from Nantes to Cardiff when it crashes unexpectedly. What caused this flight to lose control? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. We don't have much to give you because we recorded 24 hours ago yep. since the last episode you listened to, so... Almost to the dot. I so. probably still sound nasally because 24 hours on, and what a surprise, I still have a <laughs> sinus infection. So, that's still a thing. He Other took a COVID that, test. He's negative. I'm heavily negative. It's just sinus infection. As opposed to lightly negative? Yeah. You never know. know. Sometimes it's like... Marginal. Are you? <laughs> are you, though? With all those symptoms, are you? No, mine is literally just stuffed deep sinuses. Like, that is it. That is my only symptom. And it is painful. Yeah. Yes. But that's okay. I'm pretty sure I have a mosquito bite after walking Milo. Me too. I definitely got a few over the last few days of walking him. Because it hasn't gotten cold here in Colorado yet, which yeah. usually it, it sort of kind of does at this point. Right. All the bugs are still out. Wednesday. It's supposed yes. to be 59 on Wednesday. I know. I'm so excited. Yep. It's perfect. Fif- no 50s are the perfect weather. Come at me. I still think 60s. 50s. 50s, 60s. Upper 50s, lower 60s. I can go up to 75 and be happy. I know. Yeah, I can too. No. Especially with humidity, 75 is okay. No. Yeah. No. Okay. Christy's one of those weird people that likes really cold weather. <laughs> I yeah. love the snow. The snow is the best. I like the snow when I don't have to drive in said snow. I agree with that. Anyways. Anyways, we don't really have anything else to give you. No new patrons. Uh, Submit your listener stories, I guess. We have a lot. We got another one today. Yes, we did. Thanks, Spock. Thank you, Spock. Remember, like, do it for future stuff. So, spooky stories, if you have any. We usually do thankful stories for November, if you have anything to be thankful for. So, looking forward. Yep. Onward and forward and onward. Some of them are already going to be pushed into those months anyways. Yep. So there you go. I think that's it. Check out the merch. Check out the Patreon stuff. Miranda's really quiet. I am. It's because you turned me down yesterday. Yeah, you turned her down yesterday. You got turned down. For what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sorry. Anyway. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering November 264 Delta Bravo. Thank you to Dave for recommending this episode. Thank you, Dave. Yes, this is a GA accident. No, we don't cover GA very often, but this is another person of fame accident, so Mm. it's kind of why we're covering it. Okay. There is a lot to unpack in this one, though. It is not going to be a very long episode because it all happens very quickly, but... Miranda rage warning. That is fair. Oh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. You've been warned. And, And the famous phrase, it gets worse. It gets worse. That's like a new thing now, apparently. It's it's gonna get worse. Oh, God. Okay. Anyways, this is pretty recent. This happened on January 21st of 2019. Yeah, it is pretty recent. This is a Piper PA46310P Malibu. All of that to say this is a Piper Malibu. (laughs) Uh, Okay. This is a single-engine piston airplane. It is a high-performance complex. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means later on, but in the long and the short of it is, it's a little more than your trainer single-engine piston airplane. It's definitely a higher-end single-engine piston airplane. They made a turbine version of this airplane to put in perspective how much power this airplane actually needs because it is a heavier airplane for being single-engine. And it has six seats rather than four or five, depending on the 
Cessna you own. So this has six seats, of which you have the two in the cockpit. You have two right behind that that face rearward, and two behind that that face forward. Okay. And there's tables between and such. So it's not a super small airplane, but in relative form per what we talk about normally, it's small. It's very small. This is the smallest, one of the smallest ones we've talked about. Okay. This is a charter flight from Nantes Atlantique Airport in France to Cardiff Airport in Wales in the UK. Not a very long flight. I was gonna say. Pretty short. Yeah. Nantes in France is very close to the English Channel anyways. Mm. And then Cardiff is in Wales, but it's not too far into Wales. And it's just not very far, period. About half of this flight takes place over the channel. Okay. Depending on perspective. So it's not very much. The pilot for this flight is David Ibbotson. He was 59 years old at the time. He had 3,500 hours total, of which 30 were on the Malibu. Since we're talking about GA, not entirely abnormal to have very few hours when you're flying an airplane like this. Primarily because in GA it's not necessarily harder to gain hours, although kind of depends on what you do for a living. But also there are so many types of aircraft in GA and so many of them are so similar too that it's not as abnormal to jump around aircraft type. It doesn't take as much work to do so. This was a charter flight for a famous Argentinian footballer named Emiliano Sala, who had been signed to Cardiff City Football Club just two days prior. He had been playing for FC Nantes prior to this. So he was playing for the football club, soccer for those of you that really need it. Soccer. Soccer <laughs> football club in Nantes. Now he's going to Cardiff. So the two places. There's Hence he is flying between the two. The flight was originally supposed to have a different pilot, who was also the organizer for this charter flight, but these duties were later passed on to the accident pilot for undisclosed reasons. I really don't know why. Couldn't find out. It didn't say anywhere. All we know is different pilot. The pilot had flown the aircraft with the passenger from Cardiff to Nantes on the 19th, after the signing, after he was signed in Cardiff, with a planned return flight on the 21st, so now they were going back to Cardiff. Okay. Because he wanted to go and practice the next day mm. with the team. On the 21st, the pilot arrived at the airport at 2.46 p.m. local time to refuel the airplane and prepare for the flight. At 8.36 p.m. local time, Mr. Sala arrived at the airport, the footballer. He boarded the plane along with the pilot, and then the engine was started. The airplane taxied out at 9.06 p.m. with the pilot in the front left seat and Mr. Sala in one of the furthest rear forward-facing seats. Okay. That's why I brought up the seat configuration earlier. The pilot's flight plan had them flying a near-direct path from Nantes to Cardiff, flying directly over Guernsey in the Channel Islands along the way. The VFR flight plan, visual flight rules, they're not flying instrument, called for a cruising altitude of 6,000 feet for the 265 nautical mile journey. 9.15 p.m., the airplane took off from runway 03 at Nantes Airport. After takeoff, the pilot requested clearance to climb to 5,500 feet from the air traffic controller. Your traffic controller approved the climb, at which point the flight plan was activated. They began their basically direct route. The flight continued on course normally and began flying over the English Channel. Sometime later, as the flight was flying about 13 nautical miles south of Guernsey, the pilot called the air traffic controller to request a descent to remain in visual meteorological conditions, meaning there was weather. The air traffic controller approved the descent, and the pilot immediately began one. At 10.12 p.m., the flight requested a further descent from the air traffic controller. This was the last time that the pilot would be ever be heard from over the radio. 
The airplane's radar point began making turns left and right off of the intended straight course as it descended relatively rapidly toward the sea. Around 10.16 to 10.17 p.m. local time, the flight crashed into the water in the English Channel. No distress call had been made by the pilots to the air traffic controller. Search and rescue operations were launched immediately, but were quickly suspended by midnight that same night due to worsening weather over the channel. Both the UK and France participated in the search effort, even though the search area was within France's area of responsibility, but in international waters. Mm. Searches resumed at 10 a.m. the morning after the crash. By 1.45 p.m., 755 square nautical miles had been searched by five aircraft and two boats, but there was no sign of the aircraft. By the end of the day, they had searched 872 square nautical miles, so in one day, they searched a lot of area. Some floating objects were found, but it cannot be confirmed if these came from the airplane. The search continued the next day around the Channel Islands and included satellite data and phone tracking data, but there was still no luck. The search continued on the 24th, so now we're talking three days later, after the crash, now focusing on looking for a life raft in the channel. But it was quickly becoming apparent that the chances of survival were extremely remote. So they were like, okay, at this point, we probably won't find any wreckage, it's probably all sunk, but if they're alive, they're in a life raft, and they've probably floated just about anywhere in the channel. So they are searching the whole thing. Mind you, it is a very busy shipping lane, so it seems like it would be pretty easy to be spotted. 1,284 square nautical miles had been searched in all. Salo's family had launched a fundraising campaign to continue the search privately, so they hired private companies because eventually they called off the search by the UK and the French government. They were like, we can't do anything more. These searches were to begin in the next week using an unmanned remote-operated vehicle submarine to search a 25-square-nautical-mile area that was believed to be the most likely area based on the radar data from the crash. On January 30th, Two seat cushions were found in Certainville, France. There was actually more than just that. There was also an armrest found in another town, and another piece of the airplane was found in a whole other place on an island. But these were believed to have come from the airplane, so they were onto something. Researchers used the data of the currents at the time to narrow the search area to a four-square nautical mile area. The search began on February 3rd, about 24 nautical miles north of Guernsey. Later that day, the wreckage was found on the seabed, 22 nautical miles from Guernsey, some 220 feet below the sea surface. Sometime later, the body of Sella was located and brought to the surface, but the pilot's body was never found. Both had perished in the crash, and it was deemed from the wreckage that it was definitely not survivable. That's basically it for my part. So nice. it happened rapidly, but prepare to get mad. Oh, great. It, well, I'm kind of confused how it happened that rapidly anyway, so... Let's get into it. Per the ICAO, because the aircraft was lost over international waters, the investigation must be commenced by the state of registration, which was... You might have noticed. The United States. It had a U.S. tail number. Oh. So the NTSB was responsible for investigating. However, the state of registration may, under mutual agreement, delegate the responsibility to another state. In anticipation of an accident investigation, the NTSB delegated the investigation responsibility to the state of the operator, the United Kingdom. So this investigation was performed by the Air Accident Investigation Branch, or the AAIB. Yep. This aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with... A CVR. Or FDR. Or image recorder. They brought that up... I don't know. It's a small airplane. Yep. The only available recorded data was... Radar data, radio communications, 
CCTV from the departure airport, the flight plan that was saved to the cloud from the pilot's tablet, and a voice message that was sent by the passenger during taxi. Huh. Would you like to discuss that? Because I don't discuss that further. I can read for you what he said over the phone. It was a WhatsApp voice message. Okay. To a friend of his. He said, I'm now on board a plane that seems like it's falling to pieces. If you do not have any more news in an hour and a half, I don't know if they need to send someone to find me. I'm getting scared. Oh, no. Why don't you just get off the airplane then? They were airborne. He sent this voice message immediately after takeoff. I would request that they turn around and land. Something definitely seemed to miss. So here's a problem with that. The passenger and the pilot do not speak the same language. It was seen that they were communicating via hand gestures. So, that's fun. One of the first things to come under suspicion was the weather. There had been scattered storms in the area, and the radar recording showed that they were smack dab in the middle of one when radar contact was lost. But scattered showers aren't so bad as long as you're qualified to fly around and through them. Right? Right? Hmm. Yeah. You can see where About this is going. that. Ready for some Miranda rage? This pilot had an EASA private pilot's license issued by the CAA as well as an FAA private pilot's license on the basis of his EASA private pilot's license. Or PPL, I'm not saying that anymore. He had an EASA single engine piston rating or SEP rating, which is valid for two years and expired in November of 2018 with no renewal. Also, so... He's a private pilot. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Why is he flying this other person? So we'll you can there. fly other people, but let me keep going. Well, we'll yes, but it seems to me like this was a charter-ish uh-huh. kind of operation, mm-hmm. and he shouldn't be able to do that. You're definitely on to something. So it gets worse. Actually, while we're on that note, let's just go there. He didn't have a commercial license. Yeah, I kind of figured. So he can't make money off of flights? Right. It gets worse. Worse. He held a valid instrument rating restricted, which restricts him to flying a single pilot, single or multi-engine, non-complex, non-high-performance airplane under IFR. Great, he can fly IFR. But the Piper Malibu is a high-performance and complex aircraft. Oh, and he hadn't flown with instruments since he got that rating renewed in May of 2017. It gets worse. He didn't have a night rating. Was this at night? Uh Uh-huh. Why the hell was he even flying? They crashed at 9.15, around 9.16 at night. Actually, 10.16 at night, sorry. Why was he even flying? Great question. Also, this was not technically a charter flight. So to put it in FAA terms, even though this is not the part of the world where that is, this was technically a Part 91 flight. The investigators kind of went off on this because it was acting as a charter flight, as a Part 135. Yeah. And this type of operation had unofficially been declared a gray charter, which is basically they're operating as a charter under the radar, so to speak, so that they can avoid a lot of the regulations that come with being an actual charter company. Yeah, like making sure your pilots are actually rated to take people there's and a, like be in the aircraft and like all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff that comes with being part 135 and it takes a lot of work to get there. And for them... To not be 135 is just so much easier, they believe, but it is so much less safe, and it's shady, and obviously, it's illegal. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, this was mm, illegal? Illegal. So, there's recommendations later about it. Yep. So, everything's going splendidly. 
your definition of splendid and my definition of splendid, two very different things. <laughs> it gets worse. Could something also be wrong with the airplane on top of everything else? Well, considering he said it seemed like the airplane was falling apart, I'm assuming... In reviewing the maintenance records, investigators found that the autopilot and flight management system had an intermittent fault, where the autopilot would just randomly disconnect. So it was deemed inoperative, or inop, since July of 2017. That is a long time. It's a year and a half. And had a placard in the cockpit indicating as such. When reviewing the radar data, the aircraft acted like it was being controlled by autopilot in heading and altitude modes, as they were too steady to have been kept that way by a human hand. Furthermore, when making a right turn to stay in VMC, the aircraft banked to exactly 22 degrees, which is the maximum bank angle possible on autopilot. It was until the left turn afterward that investigators determined autopilot was no longer being used since the bank angle exceeded 22 degrees. At 10.12 p.m., ATC gave permission to descend below 5,000 feet, the last communication. I thought you said that they crashed at 9.15. They crashed at 10.15. You said 9.15. I said, and then I corrected myself. You'll have to go back and listen, but I said 10.15. Anyway, the radar showed a right turn and a left turn of 56 degrees with a vertical speed of descent of 5,000 feet per minute. Not great. No. That's pretty extreme, but it would have been manual and not autopilot to have done so. And investigators weren't able to determine if he deliberately flew manually or if the autopilot disconnected and he was trying to re-engage it but got distracted. The subsequent radar data, when plugged into a simulator, caused an in-flight breakup as it exceeded the structural limits of the aircraft. Well, let's take a look at the damage. The damage to the aircraft was consistent with hitting the water at high speed while inverted, left wing low, and nose high. The lack of damage to the propeller in front of the aircraft indicated that it was not controlled flight into the water, but it also wasn't in a spiral dive. The outboard sections of both wings, as well as the tail empennage, were not found. Ever. This is very similar to other accidents investigated by the NTSB where both wings failed in flight at the wing spar splice joint, the same place of failure as on this accident aircraft. In the previous circumstances, parts of the stabilizer and fin also separated which were also missing from this aircraft. Investigators conclude it as probable that November 264 Delta Bravo experienced an in-flight breakup. This would have been caused by an abrupt nose-up control input while flying at a high speed. Just how high of a speed exactly? They estimated well over 100 knots above their limit. What? It is now worth mentioning the pathology report on the one body that was found, the passenger. An autopsy found there to be extremely high concentrations of carboxyhemoglobin in his blood, and the amount in an amount that would have led to a loss of consciousness and eventual death. This occurs when the person inhales large concentrations of carbon monoxide. Since he had it in his system, logic says so did the pilot, even though he was never found. How could such a thing happen? Okay, listen. Investigators decided to be a little extensive about it, so... Forgive me if I just kind of blaze through this, because there's a lot. Potential 1. The COHB, as they abbreviate, and the passenger developed after the accident. We have discussed this a little bit before of body decomp, if that's going to produce carbon monoxide. Yeah. Jury's still kind of out on that, but yeah. it wouldn't be 58%. Yeah, it wouldn't be that high of a level. No, this is ridiculously high. Possibility 2. Cabin fire. 
there's no evidence of a cabin fire. No, and it doesn't seem like that would be the case. It was not. Potential three, fire in the baggage compartment. It was not. Which was in the plane, so... No evidence of fire in the baggage compartment. Right. Now, the rest of these are all kind of along the same lines. Gas from the engine exhaust entered the cabin through seals and gaps. Exhaust gas leaked through the turbocharger. Leak from the exhaust system passing into the cabin. Leak through nose wheel steering bellow assembly. Internal failure of the heat exchanger. All of these things kind of lead to the same thing, which is somehow engine exhaust got into the cabin. Right. Which is... Very likely, and is unfortunately also very common in general aviation. The particular reason that this stands out is because... So there are storms outside. To be precise, the outside ambient temperature was zero degrees Celsius. Freezing. Yes. The heater in the plane, there is a possibility that if there was a crack somewhere, carbon monoxide would come in through the heater. That is the heat exchanger. Quite literally, it uses the heat from the exhaust to heat the intake air coming into the cabin to allow it to heat the cabin. Right. Ultimately, based on the damage, it's really hard to say how exactly engine exhaust got in, but it likely came in through the heater through some way, shape, or form. Yep. And that's pretty much where they go with this. And once you consume, consume's not the right word, intake carbon monoxide at such Mm -hmm. high levels, it affects your ability to function. Yeah, because it's poisoning your body. It's carbon monoxide poisoning. And so this was considered a contributory, if not causal, factor for the loss of control. I guess that would make sense, yeah. And that's what I got. A lot to unpack in reality, but it's pretty straightforward. They figured out that just about everything that could go wrong did. Sorry, if I feel like I should have given a lot more, like, dramatic story. But there's not. There, there's just not. No, there was just a lot of dumb. Yep. Lots of dumb in there. Pretty much summed that one up. And dumb can only go on for so long before there's like an actual problem. Yep. And look at this. There's an actual problem. All the dumb led up to an actual problem. What do you know? So it's been 26 minutes of recording, guys. (laughs) Cool. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with all the normal stuff. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, we're back. Hello. Hello. What you got? So we're going to do most of the normal Really, it is pretty much all the normal. There are a handful of findings. I'm going to go through a handful of them. They found that there was no evidence to suggest the pilot and passenger were not fit and healthy prior to the flight or that the pilot was not well rested. So I mentioned earlier that there was CCTV footage of them taxiing. There was no indication that they had carbon monoxide poisoning at that point. No. And the pilot hadn't flown since the 19th, so he had two whole days to rest before flying. So there's no reason to believe in any way, shape, or form, that they were unhealthy or unrested. That said, that's like the one thing that went right. They found that the SEP rating, or the single-engine piston piston rating, on the pilot's EASA license expired in November of 2018, and he had no night rating, so he was not qualified to fly the aircraft at the time of the accident. Duh! found that the pilot's private pilot's license did not permit him to receive remuneration for flying, but he was to be paid a fee for the accident flight. So again... Illegal! Illegal! 
High key illegal. Don't really talk about this much, but the person who organized this charter flight, the guy who was supposed to be the original pilot, eventually got charged for unsafe operation and knowingly putting people in an unsafe situation of an aircraft. And he actually did get convicted in October of 2021. To be fair, he should be. Yep. Like, there are reasons why there are rules and places about this stuff. Yep. You can't just be like, own an airplane and say, oh, I can charge people to fly them places. That's not how this works. Right. That's the truth. Now, they could be your best friend, and you could be really nice, (laughs) and be like, hey, I want to fly with you. But that's one thing. There's still very specific rules about what you can and cannot be compensated for. And how much. They found that it is likely that the pilot felt some pressure to complete the return leg of the flight, even though it would be at night and in poor weather. So, he's flying somebody relatively famous for pay on a charter that's illegal, and he has to try to get there because that person wants to practice with the team the next morning. So there's all this pressure to get there, and he's doing a lot of illegal things in the process. You know what's interesting? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're good. The interesting thing to me is, like, this guy wants to get there so bad. Mm Mm-hmm. So why does he go through this sketchy ass? So fun fact, Cardiff said he offered him a commercial flight to get there. but Why didn't he take it? It would have gotten him there a day later. To actually practice with the team, it would have taken him a whole day because not just is not near anything. They would have had to, He would have had to go all the way over to Paris, catch a flight to probably London or Manchester, and then go to Cardiff, which is kind of far away. So he would have lost an entire day. And he said, nope, I already have my own Because he had already had this plan. He had already had this booked. And he says, no, I already have my own transportation set up that makes sure that I get there in time for practice on the 22nd. I feel like, though, if you're going to do that, do your research. Right? Like, actually go through a charter company. And the unfortunate thing is that he had already flown with this pilot in an aircraft once on the way to Nantes. Oh, no. this, This was the return leg, so... Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, it was... Before you do, I mean, people, famous people especially, some of them can be like, this can't happen to me. Money will fix everything. It doesn't fix everything. It didn't fix this. And it won't. You you could have taken that money and gone to an actual charter and probably gotten a legit booking and gotten there to and from fine. Yep, exactly. But you have to do your research. You can't just say, oh, yeah, Joe Schmo has an airplane and, you know, yeah, they can fly me and look how cheap it is. And look, yeah, that'll do great. Like, that's not how that works. Right. Exactly. So all of that was just unfortunate. Um, the next point is interesting. They found that the aircraft had valid registration, airworthiness, and release to service certificates, and the required scheduled maintenance had been completed. The airplane was actually entirely legal. Yeah. Apart from the fact that it had a few maintenance issues, but it had only had 11 flying hours since its last annual. So it was actually relatively up to date on I still, I still don't like that they left the autopilot in op for a year and a half. It is not an MEL item when you're I don't f- supposed care. to be flying it in visual conditions. I don't <laughs> I don't like it. Me neither, but it is a non-required item. And actually on all general aviation airplanes, autopilot is a non-required item. I don't I still don't like it. So and I get that. But the more interesting part of that too is the registration. So I didn't really talk about this, but it is a U.S. registered aircraft. So it is registered to the FAA. However, it was under a trustee in the U.K. So it was legally allowed to fly and operate in the U.K. and exist in the U.K. permanently. 
and it was doing so. The owner of the aircraft lived in the UK and kept it there, but kept the FAA registration current. Instead of changing the registration to a UK registration and flying it they don't have a like- little more legally in the UK. Part of why this is kind of hairy and why, to me, this definitely seems like an easy way to get away with shady stuff is because the FAA isn't going to check a lot of things about that airplane under their own regulations since it's registered to the FAA, but it's in another country all the time. Yeah. They're not going to go check. Vice versa, in the UK... Well, that aircraft's registered in the United States, so it needs to be following FAA regulations. We can't really regulate it ourselves. Really easy way to get away with a gray area and ignore a lot of things. That said, they were still doing regular maintenance because it is required in both countries. But arguably they were doing a lot of really shady things with flying that airplane. It's like if you have a car registered in Colorado, Mm -hmm. then you move to Texas or vice versa. Yep. You're supposed to renew your registration, but there's people that go years without renewing registration. Oh, yeah. Yep. With the out-of-state plate, because the authorities in that state don't understand the registration in other states. Right. Because some states, it's you get you can register your vehicle for multiple years yep. at a time. Colorado is one year at a time. Well, a lot of those plates go unstickered. So yeah. That like makes Texas, it really easy to get away with. Texas has unstickered plates. Yeah, really Here in easy. Colorado, all plates have to be stickered. Right. So, so it's really easy to get away with it when you come from a state and go to another. And it's, yeah, it's very That's similar. That's what it reminds me of. Yep. Very similar. They were all up to date, however, and that was kind of the weird thing is all of that part of that was technically legal, just kind of loopholed. They found that the regulations under which the aircraft was operated and maintained permitted it to be used for private use only. No permission had been sought or granted which allowed the aircraft to be operated commercially. So this whole charter operation, no matter who it was, was illegal. It's hokey. Hokey. They found that the aircraft was not being operated in accordance with safety standards applicable to commercial operations. So even if they wanted to operate it commercially, they weren't doing so legally. They found that the autopilot and flight director had been diagnosed as having an intermittent fault and should have been replacarded as inoperative. They found that just after 10.12 p.m., a series of turns were flown over about 90 seconds, probably so that the aircraft would remain in or regain VMC. During the turns, the flight path was unstable and inconsistent with normal cruise flight or with use of the autopilot. In other words, it was a little bit out of control. Is that time in UTC? So they put it in UTC, okay. which is 2012. This is the complicated thing. They are two hours ahead of UTC time, technically, where they were flying. So it was 10.12 p.m. where they were. Wait, 10.12 UTC? 10.12 local. Because you just said 12 something something p.m. So it would be 8.12 p.m. UTC time, 10.12 local time. That's Sorry, I must have missed the 8. Or the 10. Right, because 2012. Eight, the 8 20, is 20. 2012 p.m. UTC time, which is 8.12 p.m. Okay, UTC time. all right. All they're right. two hours ahead of that. Okay, that makes more sense. My brain did yes. not compute. So the, the confusing part about this, too, is where they're flying, which is over the English Channel, which does go from one hour ahead to two hours ahead. So they were in the two hours ahead still, leaving France and all that, flying over the Channel Islands, but then had they gone even a little bit further, and they would have been in the UK, which is an hour okay. ahead. Which is kind of strange, because it is straight north from where they took off, basically. They found that the aircraft attitude and speed were so far from typical values encountered in normal operations, they indicated that the autopilot was not engaged, and control of the aircraft had been lost. 
They yes. were flying so freaking fast. And as a matter of fact, they found that at approximately 10.16 p.m. and 30 seconds, the aircraft descended below 2,700 feet. There was an abrupt nose-up pitch input when the airspeed was at least 100 knots above their maximum speed, which full or abrupt control movements are not permitted at that speed. Because they would literally just disintegrate. And hence, they, they disintegrated. They disintegrated in midair. They found that during the subsequent pull-up maneuver, aerodynamic loads exceeded design limits and caused the structural failure of the elevator and horizontal stabilizer, followed by the structural failure of both wings at the splice joints. Wing, spar, splice, joint. Yes. They Say just, that five times fast. I know. That's why they just put splice joints. <laughs> they found that the aircraft struck the sea in an inverted left-wing low-nose-high attitude. It is hard to imagine what that looks like. I can't imagine what that looks like. But that means upside down with the left wing in the water first with the nose pointed up. Is the nose pointed, because they're inverted, so is the nose pointing more into the ocean or actually like up? Nose up. It literally just means toward the sky. Okay. Yep. I'm so confused, but it's okay. How you ended up in that situation in a good one. They found that the impact with the sea was not survivable. Thank you. Yep. It crushed. If they weren't already dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. They hit at a very high rate of speed, so it doesn't really surprise me. They found that while the possibility of the aircraft icing could not be discounted, it is unlikely that icing was a factor in the accident. They were flying at zero degrees C in a storm, so there was potential that the airplane had icing, and they really couldn't prove if that was a case or not. However, everything that happened still would have happened anyways. The airplane still would have broken up because they were still going too fast because he was still in VMC or not in VMC conditions and he was still an unlicensed pilot and they were flying at night in a storm and these other things just didn't go well. Didn't matter if they iced or not, they just couldn't prove it. It is worth noting that pilots in the area said they were not experiencing icing. Right. Here's an interesting one. They could not determine what caused the reported bang and missed on the previous flight and whether it was a factor in this accident, which begs the question... While this passenger was on this airplane with the same pilot two days before, what exactly happened there? I couldn't yeah. find anything about this, and I'm sure there's something in the report somewhere about this, but I couldn't find it. But clearly something had happened with the airplane, and that's a pretty good sign that maybe something happened to the exhaust. They managed to fly an entire hour, though, without, Carbon going, monoxide. without going completely unconscious anyways. Yeah. So it wasn't massive, but it did cause something. To happen. They found that the faults with the stall warning, brakes, and oil leak reported by the pilot Nantes were not a factor in the accident. This airplane just went through an annual, and it has so many maintenance problems. Yeah, it makes me think of how well the annual was done. Right, right. They found that at the time of the accident, the passenger's blood had a very high level of COHB, and it was likely that the pilot was also affected to some extent by CO poisoning. Carbon monoxide. Yep. They found that the abrupt pull-up of the aircraft just before it broke up required the control wheel to be pulled aft, and therefore the pilot probably retained some level of function at this time, so he wasn't completely unconscious. They found that the most likely reason for carbon monoxide to have entered the cabin was a failure of the part of the exhaust tailpipe containing the heater muff, which allowed exhaust gas to mix with the ram air and enter the cabin through the cabin conditioning system, like I said, the heating system. Right. And literally, the exhaust passes right by the inlet for the air for the cabin. And that's what heats the air. And if there's a crack in both, then it's just bleeding air from the exhaust into the cabin. Yep. They found that the exhaust system, including the heater muff, was visually inspected during the annual maintenance 11 flying hours before the accident. In a different accident, a muffler has been known to fail six flying hours after inspection. 
So this is part of why they were like, this is likely what happened, because we have proven that it has happened before within such a short amount of time. Yes. In the last finding I'll do, we found that there is no requirement for carbon monoxide detectors to be carried on piston engine aircraft, although regulators... Which is dumb! Although regulators advise pilots to do so. I will say that to this day, it's still not required yet, but so many pilots now are conscious of this that... Every pilot I know has some form of detection in their cockpit. It is simple as a sticker, by the way. They start changing colors in the cockpit when you start having carbon monoxide in the cockpit. That's really smart, actually. It's very simple, and it is not hard to do. And it doesn't add any weight. Right. And that's why this is such a simple thing to fix, that in most cases, maintenance facilities, they just recommend it, and it is simple as put a little sticker in the cockpit. That is it. Does your dad have a sticker? I think he does, yes. But in any case, so many airplanes these days, they also either come equipped with the carbon monoxide detector that's built in on a lot more modern GA airplanes, or it's as simple as getting a little tiny electronic device as well that you can have installed, and you can also have that. That gives you an alarm, so there's something that's also audible. This is also very simple. Not hard to do. So that is it. That is all I'm doing for the findings. There is no probable cause, but there is causal factors and contributory factors. Ah. Causal factors. The pilot lost control of the aircraft during a manually flown turn, which was probably initiated to remain in or regain VMC. The aircraft subsequently suffered an in-flight breakup while maneuvering at an airspeed significantly in excess of its design maneuvering speed. Yep. The pilot was probably affected by carbon monoxide poisoning. Contributory factors. A loss of control was made more likely because the flight was not conducted in accordance with safety standards applicable to commercial operations. This manifested itself in the flight being operated under VFR at night in poor weather conditions despite the pilot having no training in night flying and a lack of recent practice in instrument flying. In-service inspections of exhaust systems do not eliminate the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. There was no carbon monoxide detector with an active warning in the aircraft, which might have alerted the pilot to the presence of carbon monoxide in time for him to take mitigating action. There you go. Pretty short summary at the end of the day. Yep. It's a perfect little storm of things. Now we'll do some recommendations, of which there are really not many. Sorry for the short episode, guys. It's okay. We've done a lot of long ones recently. This is still like, wow, how in the world did they ever get away with this? But whatever. It is recommended that the Civil Aviation Authority ensure that the system in place to meet the requirements of EASA Part ARA, Gen 220, is effective in maintaining accurate and up-to-date records related to personnel licenses, certificates, and ratings. Yeah. They need to be able to make sure that everybody's licenses and ratings are up-to-date before they go flying. Yes. This is just a thing. This is something that's really hard to regulate in general aviation because there aren't FAA inspectors on every single ramp everywhere all the time inspecting everybody's licenses. And it's the same around the world. So the EASA has also no such possibility of doing such a thing. CAA has no possibility of doing such a thing. So it's just, it's hard to imagine that as being possible, but there are mitigating things they can do. And that's basically what they're getting at. They recommended to the FAA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, and the Civil Aviation Authority to require piston engine aircraft carry carbon monoxide poison detectors with an active warning to alert pilots to the presence of elevated levels of carbon monoxide. Yes. Danger, danger. High voltage. And that's really it for the recommendations. They did have a safety action of note that I thought was interesting. I'm going to read this out loud. The CAA developed a campaign to raise awareness of unlicensed charters, including publishing a leaflet, Legal to Fly, to inform passengers about flying safely in light aircraft and business jets. 
There's also a safety action taken by the manufacturer, in other words, Piper. The engine manufacturer, actually, who was probably Lycoming or Continental, I don't know. Work with original equipment manufacturers to determine the best way to convey the importance of thorough exhaust system inspections. So they actually went through this process to work with inspectors and, and maintenance facilities to say, hey, when you inspect exhaust thing, you know, exhaust systems on these airplanes, here's what you're really looking for so that you know that there's not going to be an issue like carbon monoxide poisoning. So they actually have a picture of the leaflet that I mentioned in this report, and I'm going to pull it up here. There's tons of pictures of the airplane actually underwater. If you're really curious, you can go look at it. Here is the legal to fly pamphlet the EASA handed out to or made present at facilities all around Europe. What does it mean if you are told that your flight is a cost-sharing arrangement? Right. It's kind of important. It's like I said earlier, you got to do your own research. That's what really made this a gray area because cost-sharing means that the pilot is also responsible for some of the cost, which makes this not a charter. It's but so it was sticky. Right. Because... They were supposed to be making a small profit off of it, so it's a charter. Right. Exactly. Doesn't matter if he was also responsible if he was making money off of it, which was illegal, it was a charter. Exactly. So there you have it. There that you go. That is the whole thing. I don't remember the tail number. You remember 264 Delta Bravo. There you go. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks for the short episode. We, I mean, we gave you so many long episodes. Yes. In a couple weeks, I think we can have a short episode. It's nice to have a short one, actually, every once in a while. Again, make sure you check out the Patreon and everything included on there if you feel so inclined to do so. Uh, make sure you also check out the merch page. Get some merch. Do it. You know, there's some cool stuff on there. There's some, lots of cool stuff. Some on. weird stuff that literally only we would buy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. And we have bought. And we have bought most of it, actually. And then there's some really cool stuff like t-shirts and stuff that are pretty inexpensive that... Yeah. You could, you know, just to rep our podcast. That'd be pretty great. Yeah. We thank you so much for listening in general. Thank you to our patrons. You guys are awesome. We wouldn't be able to do this without you because the podcast now pays for itself. That is true. Tenfold. So thank you so much. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.